Hi, this is Jarrett Murphy from City Limits. And this is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. And we are joined here today for this week's podcast by Susan Lerner, Executive Director of Common Cause New York. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, so it's great to have you here and thanks for joining us. So we are going to touch on a whole bunch of issues that um, you're an expert on and you're involved with and Common Cause is, is involved with. But we are about a week away from a series of special elections in New York, 11 legislative seats being filled across the state, including a couple in New York City. Um, talk a little bit about the special election process, which is obviously the source of some real criticism uh, in New York. Yes. Uh, as with so many things related to our election law, the way in which we do special elections is not very admirable. Um, there are models across the country for much more effective systems of setting up and running special elections. First of all, our special elections are at the pleasure, I would say the whim, of the governor. That does, is not the way it needs to be. Uh, in many other places, when there is a vacancy, there is a set timetable. Uh, the governor has X amount of time to call a special election, or it happens automatically, whether the governor wills it or not. Here, we're completely at the mercy of whomever is our governor, whether they think it's worth the time and trouble for uh, New Yorkers to have adequate representation in Albany. And we've seen instances with this governor where uh, did a large number of voters, over a million voters, went over a year without having any representation in Albany. Now, people can debate what is or isn't effective representation in Albany, <laughs> but some representation is always going to be better than no representation. And the over a year that you're referring to, that was in the past. And now Correct. this year, though, this time around, we saw him very consciously choose not to call the special elections until the, the winners would be seated after a budget was decided. And isn't that scandalous? Just just stating it is, I think, illustrates the proposition that the way in which we do this is wrong. Why are there so many voters, 11 districts, uh, important Senate districts, where the residents of those districts are completely unrepresented in the budget process, which in our dysfunctional legislature is one of the rare places where something actually gets done. So nobody is speaking up for the uh, residents of the district in the Bronx, the residents of the district in Westchester who ha have lost their state senators because they've moved on uh, to other offices at the local level. And we have no idea whether the programs that were actually passed in the budget are going to be beneficial to the people of those districts or not, but they certainly didn't have a voice. So we know that the, the as you put it, the, the whim that is permitted to the governor is a problem. Once the election is called, take us to the mechanics themselves, uh, themselves of, the, of the elections and what's what's good or perhaps bad. Well, it doesn't them. get better. <laughs> Let me <laughs> put it that way. And we should say, at the state level, it's very different than what we have in New York City. That's correct. Mm -hmm. At the state level, it remains far from admirable because the parties have the ability to hand pick a person and put them on the ballot as the party nominee. We don't have primaries for our special elections, so there's no good reason for that at all. So what we and the special election system here in New York is often used to deny voters a choice 
of who the representative will be. Um, you know, frankly, uh, a relevant example here in New York City was Tom Dwayne, right? He ran for re-election for his state Senate seat representing Chelsea and parts of the West Side. He won handily, and he announced that he was actually not really interested in going back to Albany, and he handpicked his successor, Brad Hoyleman, who we work with a lot and can certainly, an argument can be made, is an effective representative for that district, but he was handpicked. He was basically put into that seat on the say-so of the previous holder of the seat, or in other instances, the county party apparatus. That denies the voters their choice. It's basically spoon-feeding uh, and preventing them from being able to choose between different candidates. And there's an unusually high percentage of our legislature. And the last time I looked, it was somewhere around 40%. It's really high. It's really it's high. Yeah. And some really great legislators whom I'm happy to see there, like Liz Kruger, for instance, they won their seats in special elections. They were hand-chosen. They were blessed by the party or by their predecessor and handed their seats, denying the voters a competitive race. That's simply wrong. And we know that incumbents very rarely lose. So That's once correct. you win that special election, I think one notable exception was the uh, replacement for Shelley Silver, right, where the that he still, his loyalists still had sort of enough control to put their person in, but then... Uh, then Alice, she was not She out. lost, right. Right, right. when so, there was actually a, rare, com a competitive rare. election, but it is, it's very rare. I mean, Todd Kaminsky, again, who I think is a very reform-minded member of the Senate, he went in on a special election. It gives the person who is designated by the party or by the predecessor a leg up it creates an automatic incumbent, as you point out. And that, again, I, I think that's simply wrong. And I think it's one of the reasons why we have such low voter turnout, because people rightly feel in many of these situations that they don't really have a voice. Is it preferable to do what you just said, which is add a primary uh, to the specials versus what New York City has, which is... Um, open primary for, for special elections where there are no major party labels? I think either one. You uh -huh. know, whatever we could get done would be a vast improvement over what we have now. And what we have now in the state election law is a stranglehold by the political parties on the entire election process. So you mentioned earlier that because of the timing of the special elections for next week, the winner's didn't have any say in the budget process. Part of that budget process, obviously, was some discussion of a reform agenda that the governor uh, articulated as a state of the state in January, very similar to what he articulated the year before. Um, what sticks out of that agenda as having been a priority for you, and are you surprised that so little occurred on it? To answer your last question first, yes genuinely surprised. This felt like a very different situation in the budget, unlike the prior year where we felt there were things that were promised in the state of the state but no follow-through for common cause and the Let New York Vote coalition that, that we helped to lead. 
uh, our primary issue for the budget was getting early voting passed, and we wanted it in the budget because it has a fiscal component to it. What we were hearing from opponents upstate was that early voting, if it was passed without some funding, was an unfunded mandate. Well, we listened, and we worked very hard to get some funding in the budget. We didn't get it in the initial executive budget, but we were able to convince the governor to put it in his 30-day amendments, which is very rare. Significant, yeah. Very significant. Mm -hmm. And the uh, assembly put the same amount, $7 million, not an in unconsiderable amount in a objective sense, but couch change for the state budget in their one-house budget, and yet it fell out. Um, there seemed to be a tremendous amount of momentum around some sort of bail reform. That fell out. Also, huge momentum, in, and again, all of these things I'm talking about have tremendous public support. They poll very high. The one that polls lowest is early voting, and we only poll in the high 60 percentiles, okay? Um, when you're talking about bail reform, you're talking about something which polls close to 80% approval across the state. And the last thing that fell out was the Child Victims of Abuse Act, and that polls in the 90 percentiles. Mm -hmm. So you have a budget process that is completely unresponsive to the will of everyday New Yorkers, and only fueled by whatever the elected leaders of both houses, and the fourth one who was in there for a while, uh, and the governor see as their political agenda, as opposed to, you know, things that people have said that they actually want to see happen. On early voting, just a devil's advocate mm -hmm. argument that I've, I've thought of recently, I recall during the 2016 election, uh, presidential election campaign, that when the uh, the Access Hollywood take came out of the president, now president, talking about women in violent ways, that someone made the point that many people had already voted because their states had early voting. Is there a tension between early voting's ability to draw more people to the process, but then also kind of give short shrift to some of the deliberation and hearing debates? Is there a trade-off there? Well, the presidential election is actually a bad example because how long did that election go on? I mean, how many debates were we watching in both of the primaries? How many times did they, you know, bloody each other on public television, both for the primaries and then for the general? I mean, the problem with the presidential election is that it goes on for too long. So, you know, I, I find that argument in that context, you know, not really persuasive. Look, early voting is a voluntary system. Anybody who is concerned that they don't have enough information about the candidates or that something might be late-breaking, okay, um, does not have to vote early. Now, I, I do think that in many of the places that have early vote that have early voting, that it is too long of a voting period. They're speaking with election administrators in other states. They tell us that some of them have 45-day early voting periods wow. or even longer, okay? And they tell us it's not really cost-beneficial because they still see most people voting early in the week or two before the election. At that point, it makes sense. So we've been advocating for a two-week, 12- to 14-day early voting period 
10 days will be fine. Two weekends are what you want to exactly, be sure. Yeah, that's that's the say. sweet yeah, spot, yeah. that you want to have two weekends and an intervening week. And then you've really facilitated people who have child care situations, the elderly who are dependent on family members to drive them to the polling place, the firefighter who has to work 24-hour shifts, um, the people who <coughs> work jobs where they leave the house at 5.30 in the morning and come home at 10 o'clock at night, and there are a considerable number of tradespeople uh, and blue-collar workers who have that sort of schedule. Here in the city, anybody who runs, who works on film crew could have a call at 6 a.m., and they may not finish until 10 or 11, and that's a substantial number of people. I've heard about union electricians upstate who leave the house at 5.30 in the morning, come home at 10, and have completely unpredictable schedules. They don't know where they're going to be on Election Day. And then we got a great story, heartbreaking, from a woman whose due date was around the election, right? But you can't say, well, I know I'm going to be in labor that day if you're not going to induce your labor. So you can't get an absentee ballot based on health reasons. And what do you know? She did indeed go into labor the night before the election, and she was in labor all the way through the election, and she was denied the right to vote. You know, I, so there are a lot of benefits to it. Seems like a and also, great spokesperson there for early yeah, voting. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> also, yeah. I'd like to say what we've seen in states that have appropriate early voting times or places that have um, high percentages of vote by mail where the absentee ballot application or the absentee ballot goes out far in advance is that the campaigns adjust. And we've also seen that it diminishes the last-minute negative information that comes out. Because, oh, that's interesting. Right? Because <coughs> some percentage of the people have voted. So if, you, so if you're really planning to drop some big bomb on the Friday before the election, some percentage of the people that you were hoping to move have already voted. So it cuts both ways, I guess, is the point. So I heard you mention early voting, bail reform, Child Victims Act, all seeming to have a lot of momentum, high polling in the governor's uh, proposals, I think all in the assembly uh, proposals. Yeah. So, you know, these are things that clearly didn't make it through the Senate, the state Senate. Right. Um, but we also don't know because of the nature of deliberations. We don't really know how much the governor was pushing for things or how much Assembly Speaker Hasty was really in the room um, making these things a priority. Correct. This is one of the problems with our entire process. This is too much of it happens behind closed doors and for the budget, absolutely. And so, you know, things you didn't mention include certainly as Jared indicated, some annual measures that are on the reform list, campaign finance reform, you know. Well, what I, what I didn't measure, didn't, forgot to mention, and thank you for reminding me, sure. is the um, database of deals, sure. right, which was in there. And that dropped out. And it's so, such a simple idea. We, the taxpayers, should know where our money is going for development deals and who actually is contracted to do the work and what they said they were going to, what benefit to the public they had promised. There's no way to put that together now. 
But now that's one that I don't believe the governor had anywhere because this is more transparency, mostly for money that his administration but it, it was. Spent. It was in the budget. It was in the governor's. I don't remember if it was in the mm. governor's budget. It may have been, but yeah, certainly in the houses. I think that yeah, no, I certainly think it's certainly something the houses at least put forward that they. Yeah were interested in and, to some degree. Yeah, we were hearing that it was staying in until <laughs> mm -hmm, the very end. Mm -hmm. um, on on things like more transparency and economic development, campaign finance reform, even more government ethics, these seem to be things that the governor paid some... Closing the LLC loophole, right? right? The just, biggest beneficiary of the LLC loophole was, repeatedly says he wants to close it. And Magically, it never closes. It, and it, it's right. It seems like the governor benefits well if that stays open. It seems like there's really no appetite for it in the Senate. And in the Assembly, there seems to be discussion that the Assembly might have to agree to some reform into how unions give in order to get the LLC loophole. What is your sense? I mean, where where was Common Cause and, and allies in terms of discussions of any sense of whether what the what the high-level negotiations were on, on any of that, I or mean, was there nothing this year? Um, well, we were outside. <laughs> you know, With the rest we, of us. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, holding press conferences and urging reform and talking with newspapers who were editorializing about mm -hmm. how badly we needed to have reform. Um, I don't really know what was or wasn't discussed behind closed doors, but I can say that, to my knowledge, nobody reached out to the good government groups about it. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, the the deal to uh, dismantle the IDC and fold them back into the Democratic uh, conference, the possibility that depending on the special election results and what a senator from Brooklyn decides to do, you could have a Democratic majority, an outright one in the in the state Senate. Do you feel like that improves the prospects for reform? And if not, what will? So we're nonpartisan, okay? So who is in power or not in power is, to, you know, from our point of view, not something that we take a position on. Um, is, is there any sense that um, voters... <laughs> are going to care more about these issues this year than in past years? I think so. Um, but again, you know, I'm not in the business of political prognostication. Mm -hmm. Certainly, I think that for those of us who are advocates, we will do our very best to ensure that the discussions around the elections highlight the very significant threats to our democracy that we see not only at the federal level but at the state level and that involves how we run our elections the problem of money in politics and the unwillingness of state government up until now to grapple with a crisis of corruption and really set up an effective ethics scheme the backdrop of all this as as you and colleagues pointed out in the state capitol yesterday with a, a poster board calendar are corruption trials happening numerous corruption right. trials happening this year um former legislative leaders being retried but also first time trials for some really top former aides of governor cuomo um, many people who listen to this podcast certainly know that Joe Prococo was convicted on multiple account, uh, accounts and that there's a trial coming up of 
one of Cuomo's top economic development officials, Elaine Calieros, and, and top donors as well in the Buffalo Billion. Does, do these trials um, cement something about the governor's uh, record on ethics? How do, how do you see them in the well, bigger picture? What I see is a culture in Albany that's completely unresponsive to a crisis of corruption, and that is a failure of leadership of, our, of all of our elected leaders. Because we can propose a lot of changes to the law, and that I think is essential. Uh, and I think we need to have stronger and clearer guidance. We need to have independent oversight. But at the end of the day, the people who are appointed to these offices need to be independent. And the way they get to be independent is the person who appoints them says, okay, I'm picking you because I trust your judgment and I feel you have integrity and I want you to go out there and do a significant job being a watchdog. And I think a good example is the New York City Campaign Finance Board. Whatever criticisms you may make of it, you cannot say it's not an independent entity that takes its responsibilities very seriously. And that was set by the very, very first people who were appointed to it. Right? So they instead of picking a political crony, they picked Father O'Hare, who was independent of the political system, and he hired very smart, diligent lawyers who helped to set up the system and make it work with great independence and great integrity. <clears throat> and we're not seeing that kind of appointment process in Albany at all. And that's the other half of the equation. We need to have the laws change, but the culture has to change. And the culture changes by passing the laws and appointing the right people who will faithfully execute them independently and follow the trail wherever it goes. Right now, the only person doing that are federal prosecutors. Uh, ben, you know, just because he didn't want his question to go on for too long, listed two corruption trials, <laughs> but didn't mention the Nassau County one, which obviously revelations right. there about the mayor. And what I wonder is this, and, and I'm sure you've thought about this tension too, the more corruption cases that come out, there have been years and years of them, right? And on the one hand, it, it creates a, an even stronger case for the urgency of reform. On the other, voters look at it and say, Another this is obviously part of how it works. Everyone is tainted. We've got to vote for somebody. You know, uh, the outrage just kind of becomes uh, it, it sort of self-fatiguing. Well, is that where we are? Or are there enough, kind of, are there enough clean people uh, in Albany to actually take on this agenda? And how will they break away from the rest of their, their com colleagues who are not? Well, I think we're going to, see, you know, it, that's a very interesting question. And yes, there's the, the pictures on the milk carton, mm -hmm. right? Uh, that after a while, when you saw the milk, you just didn't see that, right? That you have to change your warnings on cigarettes because people just overlook them. Yes, there's always a concern about that. But I think we're at a very different moment right now. And that is the context in which New York finds itself, which is a national context of concern over our democracy, its institutions, and corruption in general. And as a consequence, I think we have, we are seeing at the state level as well as the congressional level, many more people running for office in places where uh, incumbents have not had any uh, opponents at all, right? You know, the Simcha Felder 
how many times has he run unopposed on three lines, on the Democratic, Republican, and conservative line, but now there are activists who are standing up and saying, you know what, whether I win or I don't win, I need to make a statement. And that's what a healthy democracy needs, and that's what we're seeing happen up and down the state. I would like to amend something that I said in response to your question about the change in the majority. I do want to give the Democratic majority of the Senate credit for... Um, prioritizing election reform as part of their agenda. So, you know, we'll see. There are a lot of procedural questions that will follow the election, however it uh, breaks down. But I think it's fair to acknowledge that they have taken up that issue as an important one for their conference. Yeah, I mean, I think that that often is the case in whatever branch of all this work you're in, journalism, advocacy, uh, government itself, being nonpartisan or bipartisan or whatever it might be, you still look at the facts and you say, oh, you know, it, it does happen that the Democratic Assembly is passing these things and the Republican Senate is not. Right. And exactly. you can eliminate party and just look at the facts. Right. Um, and so, I mean, I like to say that nonpartisan doesn't mean neutral. Exactly. Right. And that, and I mean, I think that's the case, um, you know, on our side of the uh, table as well, um, when you, you know, you look at the facts in front of you. Um, to go back to, um, you know, sort of how Jared introduced that last question, I mean, how do you step into this breach when we have um, the governor at the top of the state has top aides on trial, he's the biggest beneficiary of the LLC loophole and and isn't getting that closed, doesn't get the early voting uh, reform pushed through, and in the city we have our top executive not charged, but investigated, and, you know, donors pleading guilty to bribery. Um, <laughs> who do you work with? How do you, I mean, how do you deal with the, those facts? I mean, it's it's troubling, isn't it? It It is definitely troubling. And I should uh, say Common Cause has has brought forward some, I, I don't know how you call them, complaints or yeah, we filed, uh, with the mayor. We, yeah. we filed complaints regarding the mayor's fundraising for his outside nonprofits, um, which he then Since within close. a month closed, <laughs> right. which was which was the right thing for him to do. We wish he hadn't started them to begin with. Um, but yes, you, you highlight a very uh, significant issue. Uh, you know, it is challenging in this state because in every other state that I'm aware of, when you have the kind of corruption situation in the trials and your legislative leaders let off in handcuffs and found guilty of corruption, um, you see reform. You see reform. So I'm back to our election system, how ossified it is, how well the political parties have locked down the system so that they are not accountable to the voters. So it's, it is going to take significant effort on the part of the voters to break that system down. Uh, and that's why I think it's so productive to see so many incumbents who have challengers this year. So we only have a few minutes left, and I just want to ask a final question about what's going on in the city with the Charter Revision Commission, or commissions, commissions. Uh, obviously, yes. uh, for the mayor coming at it from the angle of a democracy agenda trying to improve you know, the, the turnout and the engagement with the electoral process. What do you hope that that process will, will begin to turn up in the way of concrete reforms, and, and which way do you think it will go? Well, first, I'd like to say I think it's absurd that we have two. 
commissions. That's been our position from the beginning. And when I was exiled to Los Angeles, I lived through a situation where they had two competing charter revision commissions, one appointed by the mayor and one appointed by the city council. Surprise. Yeah. Um, and at the end of the day, after double staffing and double meetings and double hearings and everything that multiplied the process unnecessarily, they ended up having to consolidate mm. and come up with one compromised charter revision. We would like to see there be one charter revision commission that's collaborative, that goes on for a, a substantial period of time. I certainly agree with Gail Brewer and Tish James that uh, a wholesale look at the charter top to bottom is a very good idea. That takes time. And we're also supportive of the mayor's desire to focus in on the elections and democracy campaign finance issues and look at them with a fresh eye. And I don't see any reason why these couldn't be done together in phases. Mm -hmm. If the mayor feels it's that important to take on the democracy issues first, fine, structure your commission that way. Um, so it's really uh, a sad statement that they can't get together. Um, you know, in terms of what's going to come out of it, I think it's too early to tell. We're certainly at Common Cause, plan to be very actively involved in the process. I must say that there are some outstanding people who the mayor has uh, appointed to his commission who are nationally recognized advocates for voting rights and election reform. Uh, I haven't had a chance to delve into the backgrounds of all of the commission commissioners who were appointed on Friday, but at least there are, you know, there are community, there's community representation and there is more than adequate, really admirable uh, reform representation on that commission and we need to take a look and see who else is on it. So I'm heartened with the sense that the commission will be looking at uh, an important component of the charter with a fresh eye and with expertise of, in terms of what happens in other places where we could have best practices or good ideas, which is always a challenge here in New York. We have a great sense of exceptionalism. Well, we're <laughs> in New York. Nobody could do it better. Right now, almost everybody's doing our elections better. So having Dale Ho from the ACLU, having Wendy Weiser from the Brennan Center means that you have people who actually know what the best practices are, have a sense of what did or didn't work in other places, and can bring that knowledge to bear on an important, what I hope will be citywide discussion and not just a couple of hearings that put something together and throw it on the ballot. And I'll take us out with just one final question. Um, as, as the two charter revision commissions are happening, the mayor's this year and the, and the larger one with the city council and, and pushed by, as you said, the public advocate Manhattan Borough President, or the mayor will also get to make appointments. Um, as oh, those and, the, and the council speaker. Don't forget the council speaker. Council speaker and the borough presidents, and there's lots of representation on, on that one. Um, but anyway, as those are getting going, we're also looking at the census looming. Is yes. that something, I just wanted to see if that was something that you <laughs> had a particular, yeah, is that something that you are um, right now sounding an alarm on certain things? Yes, yeah, we please. issued a white paper um, in the in the fall uh, about the need for an accurate count and at that time localities were able 
to um, provide the census with accurate information about addresses where people actually lived. Uh, we're extremely concerned. Remember, we are a group that was very, very actively involved in the redistricting process mm -hmm. in the last cycle. So we understand very, very well how crucial the census data is, not only for the distribution of money, um, from the federal government and within the state, but the entire process of drawing fair political boundaries, which is challenging in the best of times. So if you have inaccurate information going into that process, you are going to end up with maps that are uh, even more of a problem uh, than some of the gerrymandered maps that we're living with today. Well, Susan Lerner, Executive Director of Common Cause, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you.